1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics from the University of San Francisco. This episode is sponsored by University of San Francisco's Center on Business Studies and Innovation in the Asia Pacific. My guest today is Jeremy Wallace, an associate professor of government at Cornell University. Jeremy specializes in the study of authoritarianism with a focus on China, cities, statistics, and climate change. His academic research has appeared in the American Political Science Review, the China Quarterly, International Organization, and other prominent journals. Uh, His writing has also appeared in the Washington Post, LA Times, and Foreign Policy. Um, His first book was uh, Cities and Stability, Urbanization, Redistribution, and Regime Survival in China. And his newest book, which we'll be discussing today, is called Seeking Truth and Hiding Facts, Information, Ideology, and Authoritarianism in China. Jeremy, welcome.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So joining us today as co-host will be Lizzie Lee, an MIT-trained economist who is currently working as a reporter and host for the New York-based independent Chinese-language media outlet Wall Street TV, as well as for China Edge, which is part of the English-language media company The China Project. Lizzie, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. So um, Jeremy, let's get right to it. Um, uh, What is the, the central argument of your book?
2: So the central argument of seeking truth and hiding facts is can be summarized in the kind of a a single sentence, um, which is kind of the, a few numbers came to define Chinese politics until they didn't count what mattered and what they counted didn't measure up. And so let me break that apart a little bit. So a few numbers Came to define Chinese politics. Here, I'm talking about the ways in which Chinese politics and Chinese central government officials kind of moved away from Maoist ideological communist thought towards a more what is often seen as pragmatic, but more just developmentally minded mindset. Um, kind of pushing local government officials to maximize economic output, eventually GDP, and that that number in particular, <clears throat> GDP became became like the end-all be-all of Chinese politics and that this was quite successful. But over time that, what I refer to as a limited quantified vision became kind of things outside of that vision became more and more problematic and harder to ignore. So here I'm talking about issues of corruption, kind of pollution and, and debt. Then finally the kind of the numbers didn't measure up here, I'm referring to kind of two different things. One is falsification is, can we trust the, the numbers themselves? Um, because there are lots of issues with, with falsification and Chinese statistics. But then also that if the, the way that you are kind of justifying yourself is through this, this GDP number, if you, if the number isn't measuring up, if it's not growing as fast as it used to be, then that's not the game you want to be in. So that's the, the kind of core of the argument.
1: Okay. So why don't you first tell us about, you know, in the, the transition from Mao, why did this, uh, why did they they choose this narrow focus on kind of GDP above all else? And, and how, why was that? Why was that? It sounds like you're arguing a, a fairly functional strategy. Yeah,
2: I think the, the, in some ways you can kind of go, the title tries to get at this issue as well. So the, the title comes from this famous Chinese expression, this famous Expression that Deng is famous for using, seeking truth, uh, seek truth from facts. And this is actually really interesting politically because this is actually Deng quoting Mao, um, who used this uh, at one time or the other to actually go against Maoism. So, this utopian vision of Mao about the nature of political and economic organization was had failed in many ways by 1976 when he dies and this the political system and political regime were, were ready to move on. The particular kind of path that Dung takes, this particularly quantified direction that he takes is, I think it's functionalist, I suppose, in some ways, but it is, the, I think more it is just trying to do what works and trying to move away from something else that that was not working. But it also has this other advantage that it is relatively objective and fair. And so inside of the political regime, officials have a sense about what they are going to be expected to do and how they can compete. And so that has some appeal as opposed to the the wild swings of expectations under Mao.
1: Although using using numbers as a you know and metrics of various sorts was was not something that I mean that was also characteristic of at least parts of the Mao era, right?
2: Yes. So I tried to politics and numbers are always almost always tied together, and Maoist politics absolutely involved numbers. The in many ways, the great disaster of the great leap forward is partially told through this numeric story, kind of the the need to grow at a particular rate or to exceed the gross product of Britain by a certain year in time led to efforts to kind of produce radical amounts of of grain and the center state kind of extracted too much based on these um, kind of hopeful numbers. So in many ways, the state, at least Dung and others learned about the the problems of falsification, the dangers of falsification by that by that Maoist story. Um, but numbers are part and parcel to politics in China. In kind of, I would argue broadly, it's not just a, a China story. I suppose in some ways, but the the book sticks to China and it's it's kind of politics of numbers.
1: Right. Yeah, I think there's some some very broad themes as well that um, it gets to. But, but right, your focus is on uh, understanding how this how this played out in China over sort of a, a longitudinal basis. Um, OK, so uh, so the shift to, you know, focusing on uh, GDP was something that kind of everyone could agree on as a sort of least common denominator um, for the for the 80s and, and 90s. And uh, you're saying it, it worked pretty well.
2: It did. It, to be fair, not everyone agreed about these uh, these shifts towards particular numbers. Some localities, some officials were kind of more invested either ideologically or kind of had found the prior system more um, successful for their areas and so were more or less reluctant to leave. One of the advantages of the system um, was that it did not impose particular policies at the local level it simply gave targets and so it didn't require a move away from the communist vision if you were particularly committed to it it simply kind of let out benchmarks and targets that officials would be kind of expected to hit or kind of goals and bonuses and such that they would be they would receive if they hit these targets and over time there became a kind of a a shift in this direction as those kind of more capitalistic, you could argue, or at least less communistic, um, economic organization systems became evidently more successful.
1: So the, the party didn't have to officially declare or even be certain what uh, what would you know, whether a mar- more market oriented strategy or not would be uh, the the most effective one. They just said we're going to measure you and however you get there is fine. And that then sort of ended uh, and that also was politically, politically easier, even if they did have an idea that market strategy, market approaches would be better But that kind of pushed them in a direction of um, having uh, everyone like once they realized that worked so well, then moving in that direction.
2: Right. It, it encouraged, but did not require uh, this kind of reorganization. It also kind of was very limited in its vision And so if you wanted to give the major contract for the new firm in your locality to your brother or your brother's friend or something along those lines, as long as the production numbers were going up, these kinds of corrupt deals were not going to be investigated as closely as perhaps they would have under prior regimes.
0: So Jeremy, I wonder if you can talk a little more about the relationship between this idea of GDPism, as you call it in the book, and performance legitimacy why is this single metric so important to the communist party
2: i think the the general idea is that this one number gdp is associated with and has become central to the state's kind of justification strategy so this idea of performance legitimacy is often used in the literature as we the leaders of this society are legitimate leaders because we are doing a good job based on some output numbers, some performance. And GDP became the, the one number. And GDP is often highly correlated with lots of good outcomes for, for societies and for people. It's hard to replace, but it, um, and so it, it is compelling as a statistic. If you had to choose one statistic to, to measure a society, it's hard to do better. The, there have been attempts and uh, we could go into those, the green GDP effort that failed um, and others, but it is, it is often associated with this kind of general sense of economic development. And I think that that kind of moving for what is still a middle income country and what was a poor country, that, that overall narrative of development was and is, I think, compelling.
0: Uh, from my conversations with uh, China scholars, there has always been this tension, this, uh, you know, this momentum to shift goals away from GDP, even back in Wen Jiabao and Hu Jintao's times. But according to them, the global financial crisis in 2008 really sort of uh, pushed back that uh, that agenda to shift away from GDP for, for a few years. Do you think that's a valid argument?
2: Yes. The... It is definitely the case that, and a case that the book makes explicitly, is that the the prior the prior set of leaders, so not Xi Jinping but before the Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao team of leaders, were particularly interested in and aware of the the problems of this system of li- limited quantified vision or what I GDPism, and in particular in two thousand and seven, Wen Jiabao has this statement where he what he calls the four uns, and I um the that the chinese economy is unstable um unbalanced uncoordinated and unequal um and this is 2007 and i do think that if not for the global financial crisis we would have seen more direct and more powerful action by that team what we had seen was kind of efforts to kind of tinker at the edges of this system. So the core institution, the core political institution of the, the limited quantified vision is the cadre evaluation system. That is local government officials are judged by a particular set of quantified metrics which are dominated by economic factors. And so under the Wen Jiabao uh, Hu Jintao period, you saw an expansion of other factors, environmental factors, kind of like inequality, other political issues kind of being added to that that kind of list. So what was a, a set of limited, ins- kind of a limited set of measures that you had to hit or targets um, became expanded over time. That, I think, didn't lead to the dramatic change in performance uh, that we might expect or that might have really kind of remade the political system um, it's hard to separate that kind of like the the tinkering versus the global financial crisis and the way that the regime kind of made it through the crisis was that it doubled down on kind of investment and building and kind of gdpism to make sure that their kind of things didn't fall apart during this moment of crisis but it did it did run out the string for for that leadership team and so by the time that they're running out of office and leaving everyone. There's general acknowledgement that the system as it had been working needed to be changed, but there are really interesting <clears throat> differences about the ways in which it needed to like what, what were? yes, the system is not working today, but what are the real problems and what are the real solutions? And so one of the One of the claims that I make in later on in the book in chapter seven is that there's a real need to think about the debates that happened under Xi Jinping or before, as he comes into office, that this is not, that where China is in 2022, it can be hard looking back to, and just assume that of course China had to go in this path, that this was the only way that things could have gone, that that our vision of Xi Jinping is so particular and so kind of like defined by his actions afterwards. But I do think that there were really there were other possibilities that were open. And I try to I try to make that case in the book.
1: So what were some of these uh, directions of debate or, or alternate futures that people uh, were, were thinking of at that time?
2: I think the one that most people are aware of or think about is that th- that Xi Jinping is grabbing all this power in order to push forward kind of real more marketizing reforms to in order to to grab power, to shake vested interests, and then to allow the market to take a greater share of the economic um, pie in China, that that narrative is definitely out there. And I think there is evidence that people were not wrong that this was always a, a some something that was a a, a false um, flag or something that Xi Jinping didn't actually believe. I think it was certainly possible and a possible direction. The Others, you could think about kind of real emphasis on on inequality and kind of moving towards kind of taxing the rich and giving more resources towards the poor um, in ways that you could imagine being kind of much more uh, much stronger than even what he's doing now uh, under the common prosperity agenda that. Um, only emerged eight years into his rule, you could imagine lots of things that could have happened earlier. So these debates, sometimes kind of characterized as the Chongqing versus Guangdong, um, but I think are actually much more nuanced than that, um, are kind of were going on at the time.
1: So just to back up and maybe give a little context for people who aren't um, China specialists, uh, tell us more about the, the cadre evaluation system and how that worked as uh, you know, a shaper of sort of the day-to-day lives of mayors and party secretaries and other local government officials.
2: Yeah. So we refer to local officials in China often as cadres um, from their communist origins, I suppose. The cadre evaluation system is, is simply that. It's the evaluation system of these cadres. And it is a series of documents and contracts that officials' targets from higher levels that lower level officials are expected to meet. And these are overwhelmingly quantified. So you will be given a a score sheet uh, as a local official, and you'll be judged on 12 different metrics. And one of these will be GDP growth in your city, for instance. Another will be agricultural development or industrial pollution or... um, party development, various issues along these lines. And over time, what had been a very kind of limited set of of evaluation criteria under a few, just a few core ideas, um, population control was a major one for a long period of time with the one child policy, became a longer and longer set of kind of targets. So that cadre evaluation was an annual evaluation that cadres would undergo um, and was often associated with their promotion or bonuses so if you hit these targets you would receive more money and be more likely to be promoted
1: so but if you have uh, a whole bunch of different targets how were they how were they weighted or how did you uh, decide how to trade off between them or at least how did they think think that yeah,
2: would so happen? so to be clear the the kind of the each individual target was given a score you, you were supposed to hit a particular number but also was given a weight and so that weighting is is kind of already in the document um so 10 percent of the score would be based on average income growth five percent of the score would be based on something else so the the weights were there and when when you look at them the the kind of plurality of the weighting was on, developmental issues. Um, so particularly average income or industrial production or something along those lines, not the environmental metrics, which would also be there but um, in later periods, but they would be weighted much lower. So if you were a, a rational official or even just someone trying to um, kind of like just move forward in the system, regardless of your rationality, you would look at that and kind of weight more heavily the production values than the pollution values. And so over time, one of the things that I got to do in the book was to try to put together a data set of these documents which are not usually I' um, not usually accessible. and so I was able to put together some uh, not not enough for a huge regression or anything along those lines, but there are um, there are documents in that I, I try to put together for the book. And so it's the the expansion of those over time from kind of leaner, kind of thinner documents, uh, kind of fewer categories in the uh, in the earlier period and more in the latter period is the the main trend that I see.
1: Yeah, that's great that you were able to put together those at all because I feel like I've read so many things and you know, heard people always talk about the system but it's you know it often seems to be more secondhand based on well i talked to a mayor and he said this is how things worked or i talked to someone who said this is how it works but no one actually you know shows shows the very few people have actually collected the documents or, or seen uh what they look like
2: the no other level. i uh, think that's i think that's right i think um other susan whiting Yinyu, and union ong had both kind of put a couple of different documents in the in the academic record and i tried to build off of what they had done as well most of the prior work does the opposite. It simply tries to back out what officials are being judged on based on the promotion characteristics, right? So we have, we can build out data sets of promotion of officials. And so if we look at their reported economic activity and promotion, we can kind of see, is there a correlation between these two things? And so often the kind of the literature goes back and forth debating between, is it is it rapid economic growth that causes you to be promoted or is it close connections or factional ties to your kind of someone else in the hierarchy and those kind of like those they we run horse races and regressions on on those fronts and i think the trying to to kind of look at one the original documents themselves but also to tell a more nuanced story but also that this is like that shows that there these factors did matter the economic factors did matter um, but I also try to think about, well, what is that, that factional story and how can that actually fit into um, our analysis of Chinese politics? And so one of the things I was trying to do, I did with, um, this is, it, it's in chapter six of the book with, and it's joint work with um, Zhang Junyan, who's at, at Columbia now. And we, and if, the first time I, I kind of presented some ideas from the book, I presented at Chicago when he was a graduate student and he kind of like... Ripped into it and didn't, wasn't a big fan. And so that was a really, uh, it ended up being a very productive exchange because he's a scholar of, of factionalism and connections and networks inside of Chinese politics. And we end up kind of trying to think about the ways in which information flows uh, at, through these networks um, and how that might affect Kind of the information uh, in the economic system. Because one thing that we know in the Chinese system is that people falsify these data, right? If you are both the official in charge of uh, the local bureaucracy and you're going to be promoted based on the reported numbers, you might be interested in falsifying that data and might be able to do so. And so one of the things that, we, that we're that we able to do is to look at kind of, if you are connected with a higher level official, you might, you might be expected to falsify less because that's a risky activity on your part. And so we actually find that that is the case, that officials that are connected to higher level officials and thus have a higher probability of promotion all else equal, we see less falsification or what we identify as falsification in their economic data. And so this kind of points to some of the ways in which these kind of statistical systems and economic systems kind of connect to other parts of the the broader authoritarian politics.
0: So I think that's a super interesting aspect of um of of you know China's study. You know, vaccine question for investors has always been the accuracy of China's GDP data. I know there has been multiple studies on this topic on how the number is usually smoothed out. It's uh, the quality is lower during recessions, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the question I have is, does top leadership know? The extent to which those data are actually falsified, and how how do they actually detect data fudging downstream?
2: Yeah, there's this famous uh, quote from Li Keqiang that's from from the WikiLeaks documents, but it's saying that kind of GDP is man made, um, and for reference only. And then the the document there fa- says, in in my world, famously says, um, he said smiling, and so I feel like I've I've really um, gone to town on Li Keqiang smiling at that moment. And I feel like, to me, it's really important for a couple of reasons. One, it acknowledges that this is a problem inside of the political system. But it also points to the fact that the leadership knows that this is a problem. And so the I think importantly, that this is an understanding that it exists, but that they are unable or unwilling to kind of remake the political system in order to to deal with this problem suggests that they don't think that it is that significant of a problem now Li Keqiang puts out four kind of three different metrics that he thinks you can use or he uses to try to kind of improve his sense about the realities of economics in the locality that he is in that was Liaoning at the time and he it's kind of freight um, rail freight and loan data and electricity data and so in particular electricity data, I think is uh, very highly correlated with GDP. And so we can use that metric, um, which is less likely to be falsified because people are buying and selling electricity. And so it's hard to just kind of send out electricity and, and have it disappear in a way in order to falsify that. Um, so there is something similarly, the, the freight data is kind of like being paid to fr- There their costs and benefits and so on it's hard to, um, harder to manipulate than GDP, which it, after all is just this abstract um, number, uh, not kind of, not material in the same way. So the book doesn't, I have to admit, does not have a particular kind of solution to this problem. It does not say that the real number you need to look at in China is is X. Um, that's, that's for the business consultancy that I, I have yet to start. But perhaps um, I do think that the, one of the ways that we try to think about the the extent of falsification is to look at these close correlates, so electricity or electricity paired with with freight, but also nighttime lights data to try to think about the the scale of economic activity in the in this space. Um, but over time, it becomes a very hard problem to solve as kind of the economic activity changes. You move from a more agricultural or industrial economy to more service based economy. Things like the lighting, the technology of lighting shifts from kind of fluorescent lighting to uh, LEDs and things like that makes your nighttime brightness scores difficult to to measure. It's, it's a very, um, it's a vexing problem. And the fact that it vexes uh, Li Keqiang was always a comfort to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of, I mean, that's the reason why GDP as a measure was invented, because you didn't want to just measure any individual thing that's kind of correlated with Growth. You want to measure, you know, how much is the whole economy, uh, you know, producing and uh, you know, balancing and all all the different elements. So, yeah, but, but then we get into the problem that you know, as soon as you as soon as you start measuring something and conditioning performance and promotion on it, then people people have an incentive to you know to fudge it or you know do things that contribute to it but don't contribute to the objective. Um, and at, or or just to to lie out right depending on you know what what levers they have to control and it seems like right. that, that certainly happened with the GDP focus.
2: Right absolutely for instance you have lots of uh, local officials who are kind of there's real there's a there's a, a real economic activity bump that happens that kind of doesn't that, that doesn't make sense for the whole but makes sense for that particular locality if they're trying to increase GDP and so here, there kind of you have overproduction of buildings uh, and the ghost city problem that that is kind of rampant in in some urban areas. You have kind of overproduction of production facilities because those were kind of important at different moments in time. So these are not economically rational for the larger unit, for the the province or the country, but for the local official just trying to increase GDP. Uh, growth in the short period of time that they're at a particular city, it could be quite beneficial. Similarly, pollution, if that's not as important, or or debts that you might be kind of like willing to to kind of mortgage the future in order to make sure that today's numbers look good while you're there.
1: Right. So a lot of things that aren't really, aren't necessarily optimal, aren't contributing to the long run productivity and might actually harm GDP or in, in the future. But but in the near term, can can bump up the numbers because of the the limitations of of even how a sort of accurately calculated. I guess the, I guess the key thing is GDP is sort of partly calculated on the assumption that you're in a market economy, so the pricing is something. If someone builds something and someone else buys it, whether it be a building or a factory or whatever else, that that in some way reflects the value. But if you are not in a you know. And markets are imperfect too, but, but if you're outside a market setting where, where it's even much more arbitrary, what gets built, what, what gets purchased, and you know the banks and other institutions don't have a particularly strong incentive to to dispute it, then yeah, then the, the foundation of those numbers can get pretty skewed.
2: Yeah, there's this, a, a final twist on this is that there was this moment um, in, in the mid-2000s when green GDP became a thing. This is the idea that in addition to all the factors that we were talking about, you can think about the kind of how do you try to incorporate environmental degradation or use of environmental resources into a kind of broad metric of the economy. And so this kind of effort was kind of labeled green GDP. And it's technically very difficult of a problem to to think about and to measure. And so it it's its failure is kind of is failures universal. Um, but the Chinese failure is particularly interesting because one of the, the in the pilot areas where it was taking place um, local officials um, complained to higher level officials that they didn't like the results and they didn't want to see them released. And the, the, all the evidence points to, the estimates of green GDP is that these provinces were actually not growing, if you try to think about the environmental degradation that they were um, it, kind of inflicting on their populations or their territories. And so that this kind of like abstract idea of kind of pollution as a problem and trying to incorporate it into this big metric that was core to the political system uh, made sense that they were trying to do it under Hu Jintao Wen Bao, but it, it didn't actually take place because it was too radical a rethink um, of what they were doing
1: yeah and there's so much of just um, GP in general being uh, you know once you once you hung your hat on especially you know they had uh, you know that sort of seven or eight percent growth figure as kind of this magical figure for many years of like sort of even even the central government kind of making it sound like everything will fall apart if we don't hit this figure every year and and uh you know we'll have mass unemployment or something like that um and and unrest and so once you've kind of got that in everyone's mind then saying okay now it's gdp but it's green gdp so it's measuring something different but then if you get a different kind of number then then people are going to be people don't know how to interpret that i think
2: yeah there's a there's a shock to the system that i think would be difficult to accept difficult for investors or communications to to take place and I think especially given the disbelief in Chinese numbers to begin with the idea that perhaps this would be seen as like the real number as opposed to the the other false number I think also was a, a fear perhaps that they they were putting forward but I the expectations the expectations idea that things were things were growing and were growing so fast for so long that people got used to a particular rate of economic growth and got used to that rapid transformation is is again an, an important reason why in twenty twelve everything feels like it has to to change because they they can no longer grow at eight percent. And even if they can only grow at five percent, even if that five percent seems rapid from a European or American perspective, that that feels like a real slowdown. And so for people that had grown expected to that, that rapid growth, a real slowdown, even if it still was, was represented growth, did, um, did require kind of rethinking the way that they, that the regime thought about itself. And
1: yeah, so let's, let's go, uh, go in that direction now. So there was this, uh, you know, focus on GDP growth and then attempts to, you know, incorporate other, other quantitative measures into, um, that, that picture, which faced some practical challenges, like with green DGV, like, what are we really trying to measure? Uh, and then also with, you know, the, um, the economic crisis in, in 2008 that, that Lizzie mentioned. Um, and then also even when it was kind of working sort of, uh, was associated with yeah, indiscriminate pollution, um, corruption, um, i think misallocation of of resources in general you know towards things like infrastructure and development and and sort of buildings even if they weren't uh in the long run interest uh overhang of debt um and just just straight up lying about the numbers so that all was going on so it's 2012 everyone's kind of realizing we need a new approach so what is the how do you see xi jinping's new approach in this context
2: yeah so the book tries again to to suggest that it wasn't clear, I think, wasn't clear to those inside of China, those observing China. And I would argue um, that even the inside of the the leadership team themselves, that they didn't know exactly the direction that things were going to go in. They Some things were clear. Corruption was too um, serious of a problem and that needed to be clamped down on from the beginning. And so you see even from the very first moment Xi Jinping emerges as party leader, you know that there's been some political co- consolidation because the size of the, the leadership team, the Politburo Standing Committee goes down from nine to seven. And so there's kind of like things are um, already tightening from the beginning. And he immediately launches an anti-corruption campaign that goes after not, the tigers and flies, goes after high-level officials and low-level officials um, trying to to kind of change what was going on. I talk about this in the book as an attempt to kind of as both a a fix and a hedge. So if you think one of the problems of slowing growth is because of too much corruption, then trying to stop corruption might might reinvigorate growth. On the other hand, kind of trying to if you don't think you're going to be able to do that, then it begins to serve as a hedge that instead of rapid growth, it's clean growth or clean governance. And so this kind of like, so from the beginning, it was, there was definitely an element of political control of the, of the party and of local officials. At the same time, there really was a real back and forth between kind of extents of political control all the way into the economic sphere versus kind of suggestions and kind of hints towards marketization. So there's a a third plenum document about a year into to Xi's uh, leadership of, as general secretary of the party, that kind of is heralded. It, it, the communications are really a bit tepid at the beginning, and people are really confused, and markets kind of tank. And then um, they put out a, a longer document, and everyone suggests, ah, the market is the guiding force, and this is going to be a major uh, a major transition towards more market uh, orientation in the Chinese economy. Um, and that's that's how it's read for a while, but it it turns out that that n- ends up not being the the most significant piece but the most significant piece is instead that Xi Jinping is himself inserted into various uh, leadership groups and that the the party is made more powerful inside of the economy. So this, Kind of like the some parts were were obvious and agreed upon, and then the but the control and the extent of state control or party control of the economy, I think, was was kind of moved back and forth at various points in time.
1: Right, I and mean, it seems like yeah, I guess the question would be, you know, did, did Xi Jinping even know what he wanted at the start? And, and I suspect he didn't. I think he wanted to be in charge, and then you know, and once once you're in charge, maybe obviously good or bad movies, you know, it's just not. Aside from wanting to be in charge, not necessarily an, an ideologue, I suppose, in terms of what economic model um, he chose choose. And so that's why these different kinds of stories came out. But I don't know. How do you how do you read that?
2: I think it's also important to remember the extent to which China is a is China's economy is really connected to the global economy and the extent to which kind of like it's the U.S. Federal Reserve or various other kind of like international economic um, kind of jumps up and down that are leading to some of these issues. So there's moments where there's concern about capital flight out of China at various points in time in the 2014, 2015. There's real concerns about Chinese debt levels that seem to be kind of like um, becoming a real concern. The extent to which Expectations and people's beliefs about the kind of future direction of both the economy broadly, but also just that what is problematic and what is not problematic, I think can really um, become self fulfilling very quickly in some of these worlds, especially when you have huge amounts of debt and underlying problems that are quite significant. So it's, I don't, at no point do I really pinpoint and kind of try to do a deep read on this is the moment where you can really see Xi Jinping's speeches. He switches from from X to Y, I think it's. I think it's really hard to, to try to do that. And maybe down the line, we'll be able to um, get enough of a corpus or get enough of a sense of um, his his thinking um, that we'll be able to do that. Or people will, as they retire, will write their memoirs and, and say this is the day that they convinced Xi Jinping to, to move in this direction or something. Um, but it's. I do think it's really hard because he tries to play it both ways a lot and the rhetoric is pretty, pretty muddled throughout. Um,
1: so, um, so you characterize this period as a, as a neopolitical turn. So it's, aside from him taking more control, so more central role for the party. And so is that also uh, a legitimating strategy?
2: Yeah. So the, the book actually, the, the very beginning of the book, I kind of tell, this narrative comparing Wen Jiabao, the last the last kind of government uh, work report that he presents in in 2013, he just lists. Um, there's so many statistics in that speech, and no names. It's very kind of the kind of the pinnacle of technocratic and kind of depoliticized. And only at the very end does he mention anyone's name, and that name is Xi Jinping. But then six months later, she goes to to Hebei. This is in 2013 and visits and it's kind of very deeply political and the the party secretary the leader of the of that province at the time kind of has to perform a self-criticism has to do this kind of like act of contrition towards the leader Um, and what he says is really interesting he says i was not concerned about i was too concerned about economic volumes and not as much about the people's interests and so for me, this was one of the things that really turned me on to the whole project was this idea that a Chinese leader could care too much about GDP, uh, too much about economic volumes. And so there is some sense from the beginning that there was a a need to shift the actual kind of like direction. So, but that that was not just a a private meeting, but that that was broadcast to me seemed really important and can kind of conveyed a a shifting idea about what was important in Chinese politics and that things would no longer be as bloodless, as boring, as technocratic, that things would be more, um, more conflictual and more, uh, directly about values and priorities and who was good and who was bad. Um, so the, the main tenets of the neopolitical turn, as I refer to it are Kind of, there's a lot of personalization of power in Xi Jinping, the, the person himself. But there's also broad centralization of authority, kind of not just to Xi but to Beijing. Um, there's the party is increasingly present in lots of spaces. There's increased monitoring, um, and there's also an emphasis on on political strength, whether that be abroad um, or or domestically. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of nationalist messaging as well. So those are kind of like some of the core tenets of what I refer to as this, this neopolitical turn.
1: Okay. So, um, so you were mentioning, you know, GDP as the the big number for, you know, especially the eighties, nineties, and early two thousands. Um, and, and now, uh, I guess I was just thinking, you know, the, the big number for the past few years has been zero. So zero COVID has was the one seemed like unalterable, uh, variable until about a week ago. So, how do you how do you fit this into your theory?
2: Yeah, so I was I was writing a book about politics and numbers in China, and then I was finishing the book in kind of the spring of 2020, and it it becomes very clear that you can't write about politics and numbers in China and not not think about COVID. And so, I the way I think about about zero COVID um, is that it was a, a catastrophic success. It's so outside of the initial kind of bumbling, and we can talk about the information at the very beginning, because I think it's actually an important piece of the story that in February of 2020, China goes from kind of a real moment of political danger when Li Wenliang, the kind of whistleblower who ends up dying of COVID um, in Wuhan um, dies and kind of, there's all this kind of complaint about him. The, the, but China has locked down at that period of time and people are back in their hometowns for Chinese New extended Chinese New Year and the death rates kind of really start plummeting. But at the same time as they explode in Italy and Iran and elsewhere around the world quickly in the United States. And so that moment of political danger kind of dissipates very quickly. And China remains um, quite um, one of the safest places to be in terms of COVID mortality um, for the next two years, um, all through 2020 and 2021, even with the del- the Delta wave, China's kind of strict border controls and quarantining policies keep the country very, very safe from COVID. Increasingly, people are chafing and wanting wanting to go back, and and so forth. But it is relatively, at least, safe from COVID. But with Omicron, the kind of like the transmissibility of the virus is so intense that it really breaks through. And so this is where the, the catastrophic part of the catastrophic success comes in, is that they, um, they really believed that they would always be able to, to avoid the virus or not deal with it. And so the lockdowns really were, became quite catastrophic uh, themselves as you know, huge populations were, were locked down for sh- or Shanghai, kind of most famously, but lots of cities have, have suffered lockdowns during this period. Um, and so in an effort to keep the transmission numbers to zero, that kind of continued all until I don't, uh, it, it's, it switched very, very quickly. There was, um, there was this kind of insistence that zero COVID was forever. And then a switch a week later when, um, all of a sudden, uh, it's all opening up and Omicron isn't that dangerous. So the messaging is flipped dramatically and, here on the falsification point, I really, I think while I I don't know if the exact number of officially reported dead for the, the kind of the most of the pandemic of 5,200 um, is accurate, I assume that there are probably those who have been, who did die of the virus who were not counted, especially at the beginning. It's it's very clear right now that the the both the infection numbers and quickly the death numbers seem to be... Um, in a cycle of falsification. Um, there's lots of, lots of people that I know in Beijing, um, their friends and family are, are getting sick with COVID and the, the official numbers are not going up in any way. And so I, I really worry that we're in this, um, this kind of cycle where there will be a wave that will just, uh, the the government will try to attempt to deny it.
1: So we're on a, we're, we're on a, well, now it's not zero COVID anymore, but you're saying it sounds like we're still on a on a new kind of numerical target or at least a and a sense that success or failure is all gonna be defined around one number and so again we're gonna see distortions to that number.
2: Yeah, I think that was the the zero COVID story was this like it didn't matter the the negative consequences on people's kind of mental health or people locked in factories all of these other things were in service to the one number this public health number of of zero COVID which again achieved real success on that number for a long period of time. Um, all of a sudden, with the after the protests, maybe or maybe not because of the protests that did take place, um, you've seen a, this 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 massive switch and now the public kind of like propaganda apparatus is kind of like suggesting openness and kind of moving away and not being afraid of the virus and living our lives again. Um, Take off your mask, these types of, these messages. And this is in all the other societies that have had um, relative success um, with border controls then opening up, um, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, uh, Hong Kong, um, saw massive spikes. And so these are the, the sources of estimates that China, if China had a similar spike along the lines of what Taiwan had, that they would expect half a million to a million or even more dead within just a few months. And so this is why people really wondered how China would try to navigate this. Um, and it seems like they just their attempt is going to just be to open up and try to deny the extent to which a wave is actually happening which is to me a very, very dangerous and surprising path. I guess it it fits some of the um, ideas of of my argumentation that the regime takes advantage of its political control to manipulate information that it releases, but I I didn't expect um, such a dramatic jump so quickly.
1: It reminds me a little bit of the the green GDP incident in the sense that there's this problem of they, they don't have a good way of getting people to, or at least... The, yeah, to think about trade-offs and to sort of accept, well, there's various multiple good things that we want to achieve, and there may not be a crisp way to decide, to discuss how we're balancing one versus the other, um, but instead it kind of, uh, you know, swings all or nothing, you know, GDP is good or, you know, okay, well, let's try to g- balance GDP with pollution. Oh goodness, that's hard to measure in a good way. And then it all kind of, uh, uh, yeah, just, there's no, no, I mean, this is hard in any country, so it's not necessarily unique to China, you know, politicians always oversimplify and then people get upset with uh, them not hitting their their claims, but um, that's always uh, challenging. Um, Lizzie, you had a question.
0: So just to follow up on the, uh, the 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 issue of zero COVID and the sort of the just dramatic, uh, you know unravel unraveling of this whole zero COVID instru- infrastructure, Xi Jinping and his administration has been building up for the past three years. I do wonder if zero COVID will take a toll on Xi Jinping's credibility. I mean for something like GDP and number, right? I mean people don't really understand what it means to have 3.5 versus 5 percentage point growth. But for zero for for covid cases, people can literally, you know, see and hear from people close to them that they, they are literally every, everyone is getting covid while the official number is not going up. So, how do you think Xi Jinping and his his administration will try to Tell that story and how to reconcile the official number with what people observe on a day-to-day basis?
2: This is that's a great question, Lizzie. I don't this is why I'm very I'm very surprised by the kind of rip-off the band-aid style of openness that it seems like is being undertaken, that it goes that, as Peter was suggesting, going from kind of zero to one, going from kind of lockdowns and kind of the virus is, is is lethal to kind of not being concerned. That One of the reasons why people foresaw it would be very difficult to move away from zero COVID was the extent to which it was tied to the leader, to, tied to Xi Jinping himself. And so it is very hard for me to see um, how this will play out um, going forward that of course one of the problems of centralization if you are the the kind of like person that is the face of this policy that when people complain about the policy as happened with the protests people call on you because it is seen as your policy as opposed to just some broad national policy with local officials kind of like misbehaving in some way and so people really did point at the leader now that the policy is shifting um, and they're going to be kind of like faced with the reality of this in a a real direct way, either their own lives um, as they get sick or those that they know and love, um, or just the the, even if they are able to avoid illness, if they're kind of the people they know or the businesses that they like to to visit are shut down because of the the virus, it does seem to me very hard to square with the idea that they're going to be able to simply do a a kind of information blackout about something like this that will kind of rip through a, a huge population. So I, I imagined that we would have something more subtle uh, about kind of like, well, yes, we had a wave, but it was much smaller than expected because of the wonderful health system that Xi Jinping has built or something along those lines. But it seems like a, a denial is... Um, a, the denial wave is, 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 what's, is the story that they're going with, which I, 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 I don't foresee being quite successful. I think that there will simply be too many... Um, Too many people with serious illness needing to go to hospitals and too many people with cell phones able to kind of share those images of overcrowded hospitals and over time, probably kind of like too many, too many um, bodies as well. So it's, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a surprise that they're going on this path that seems to me a dead end.
1: Wow, that's uh, yeah. It does seem like there's going to be some some scary times ahead, and uh, hard to predict how how that's all going to play out. Um, I think let's uh, let's wrap up here. There's about a million more questions I could ask you, but uh, anyway, that's why people have to go and, and uh, get the book and read it. Um, so uh, I'll restate the title. It's uh, seeking truth and hiding facts, information, ideology, and authoritarianism in China. Um, Jeremy, it's been great having you uh, on the show,
2: and uh, Lizzie, thank you so much for uh, for joining us.
0: Glad to be here.
2: It was really great. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much.